1: If everyone on the other side of this argument in our society could just read this book. It is about her specific family and it's about Vietnam and the Vietnam War and there's something special and unique to how focused it is, but this is the same story as someone leaving Honduras or Guatemala in the caravan or whatever, right? Every American has some piece of this in their heritage. It's such an American story. But I think that's also what makes it special, the fact
2: that it is a Vietnamese story because we see a lot of immigrant stories told from the point of view of other, usually whiter races. Every time you hear a story about the Vietnam War, it's always from the perspective of the Americans. And Bowie brings this up. Much of the depictions of Vietnam really comes from America.
1: Hey guys, it's Raman. You're probably wondering what's going on. As you might have heard me mention on Modern Minorities before, I have a few other podcasts, one of which is Quarantined Comics, my super secret, super nerdy comic book book club with my reporter buddy and past model minorities guest, Ryan Joe. We recently actually had Sharon on the show as a guest to review a comic, and our discussion got pretty deep and pretty real about all of our family's immigrant histories. And honestly, it started to feel like a Modern Minorities episode. So Sharon and I decided we share this as a bonus episode for you guys and if you want to nerd out more on some of the best not just superhero comics out there we hope you'll subscribe to quarantine comics you can find it wherever you get your podcasts or head over to qtdcomics.com. hope you'll enjoy this one Welcome to Quarantine Comics, everyone's favorite podcast of mirth and mayhem where we talk about some really good things that you should have already read. I'm Roman Segel and I'm Ryan Joe and we're two wild and crazy guys,
2: meaning I water my plants and Roman waters his kids who don't know much but for the next 45 minutes we'll pretend we do. Got something to say, perhaps a book suggestion or a sponsorship deal? Hit us up at qtdcomics at gmail.com. Operators are standing by, and by operators I mean
1: myself and Raman sometimes when we remember. Hitting refresh on the inbox 24-7. So this week we're actually getting a little heavy, and we're going to talk about the best we could do, T. Bui's illustrated memoir of her family's history in Exodus from Vietnam to America. This is Bui's first graphic novel from 2017, and it's a moving one. It covers love, war and the refugee's journey with a really intimate focus on one family, her own. And rather than simply retelling her own memories, which are shown through the eyes of a scared little girl, Bui also chooses to illustrate the stories of her parents from their youth in Vietnam to the estranged present in America. As she says, proximity and closeness are not the same. If you want to better see the Vietnam War from the perspective of one Vietnamese family and feel what so many immigrants endure, I cannot recommend a better book to start your own journey. I accidentally discovered this book at the library a couple years ago. And as the cover said, it broke my heart and kind of put it back together. So joining us tonight is my longtime friend and not a dude, Sharon Lee Tony. I am not a dude. <laughs> not a dude. Uh, a podcast second, I think. Sharon is a fellow child of immigrants and my co-hostess with the mostest on my other podcast, Modern Minorities, where we have candid conversations on work and life through the lens of race and gender. So this book really felt like a good one to have her join our discussion for. So Sharon, welcome to Quarantine Comics.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I have to say, I'm so not a comic book fan that when you guys invited me to join you, I was thinking, great, I can read a 20-page graphic comic about superheroes. And in the mail, I got this very heavy memoir that really did, it broke my heart too, and and put it back together. That's very poetic. So good to be here.
1: Well, Sharon, tell us a little bit more about you. Beyond being just a child of Chinatown and a transplant to the West Coast now, what, I mean, again, it sounds like you don't read a lot of comic books. What's your relationship with fiction? What are some of your favorite stories?
0: You know, it's funny. I don't read a ton anymore. I think growing up, I enjoyed all the typical things that you'd get from Scholastic Book Club, the Babysitter's Club, and things like that. And then in my adult years, kind of peruse through the New York Times bestsellers. I think in the most recent past, I read a lot of business books. I've been doing a lot of audiobooks lately. So I really love Michelle Obama's Becoming, which everyone has probably listened to at this point. And lately I've discovered a very, I don't even remember how I discovered him. I know my husband had recommended him and maybe he heard about him through a friend, but Wallace Waddles, who wrote a series of books about a hundred years ago. So in 1911, and it's all these really interesting life philosophy type of things. So he's got one called the science of being rich. And then he has another one called The Secret to Perfect Health. And then he has a third one that I haven't gotten to yet. But I've been listening to those as audiobooks. And it's fascinating to me that something that this man believed in 100 years ago is still very applicable today.
1: On our other podcast, we asked the guests, oh, what's the last good book or movie you've seen that kind of relates to the conversation we just had on race? And nine times out of 10, you've actually read the (laughs) book and I haven't. (laughs)
0: Because most of them are saying things like The Alchemist.
1: Which I still haven't read. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) 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 Which you need to read.
1: (laughs) Three guests have brought it up now.
0: Yeah. But my relationship to comic books, I think there was one time in junior high school when Superman died. Maybe for the first time, maybe for like the fiftieth ah, time yes. or something. I don't I like I don't know enough. First of many. Yeah. I, I don't know enough about how many times he's died since then. But that was actually the first comic book that I bought because I had thought Well, I want to get a copy of this. It'll be worth something one day and I'll be able to sell it.
1: (laughs) Marketing, evil marketing.
0: Yeah. So I actually went to the comic book store with a couple of my friends from middle school and we had stood in line and bought the comic. And, you know, six months later, he came back to life or something. And I was like, this is so ridiculous.
1: (laughs) And that's when Ryan quit reading comic books. (laughs)
2: Well, I'm kind of curious, Sharon, where is that specific comic now?
0: It was in my room for a long time, probably up through college. I kept it in its plastic bag with the cardboard or whatever to keep it totally pristine and untouched. Um, I think I ended up throwing it out, though, guys, to be honest.
2: Wow. I'm, I'm just amazed that DC's marketing actually made you adapt the habits of a hardcore comic book collector. Yeah,
0: in that brief moment.
2: Just in that one brief moment. I mean, I just kind of find
1: that sort of like, that's awesome.
0: It's true.
2: I mean, it's kind of horrifying.
1: <laughs> it, but but Ryan, if we can get everyone else to throw theirs out, ours are going to be worth something.
2: That's true. You guys are right. Well, you got Sharon. Sharon already tossed hers, so that's one down, a couple million to go. Hey, everybody listening.
1: Throw them out.
0: But the other thing they did was they published a ton of copies. It's not like there was like a limited
1: amount, right? But that's part of the marketing of comics in that era. And Death of Superman, Superman 75 was like the thing that kicked it off, is this idea of fake scarcity. Because people were buying like 10 copies of the new Spider-Man number one, the new X-Men number one. Everyone was, it became a very speculative market and it just became flooded. And it honestly took the fun and the value out of comics for me. It just became just too commercial and not about stories. But you know, one thing on, so most of the podcasts I work on, we all start on a Zoom and we all say hi before we jump to audio only. And at your old place in New York City, you would always have this yeah. ghostwriter post ghost just writer. behind you. And all of our guests, these like <laughs> famed reporters or comedians, <laughs> their first exposure was like sharing with the ghostwriter post behind
0: All fake, yeah. So I, I live in a family of of three other boys or men. So my husband and my two boys, and they are so into comics and they know so much about all of them, whether it's DC or Marvel. And I did have Ghost Rider behind me for a while. And then I think I had a Luke Cage poster to my left as well. And I know nothing about both of these characters, but they looked really cool behind me. So I just kind of kept them up when when I was doing Zoom calls. (laughs) Nice.
2: Are there any seminal Ghost Rider stories? Because we should have Sharon's sons. Come on, as guests, if
1: there are, or or her husband, or yeah, her husband.
0: I think my husband would love to be on here talking to you guys about comics for sure. Love
1: we'll to ask for a recommendation.
0: Yeah, my kids are into Spider Man, so they get Spider Man you to death. You guys probably know more than they do, but like literally Spider Man <laughs> trivia up and down like crazy, and then a little bit of Batman too. So those are kind of there too areas
1: of expertise you would probably disown me as a friend because like the batman and spider-man stuff we would probably read on this podcast is the most (laughs) fucked up stuff (laughs) the kids shouldn't be reading
0: (laughs) so i take that back
2: (laughs) so sharon i was just actually wondering about your experience reading the best we could do because you said you haven't read a lot of Mm -hmm. comics And I would guess that your conception of comics is mostly superheroes. Maybe the comic strips, Snoopy or Calvin Hobbes. And And so you get something like this, and it's a lot heavier. It's the sort of story that's usually delivered in prose. But in this case, T. Bowie did it graphically. Mm -hmm. What was your reaction? Do you think it was different from if you had read it through text?
0: I think it actually punctuated the emotion of it for me, because I opened it up. I didn't know anything about this book besides the fact that she was also featured in the top 21 list of Asian American creators to follow in Huffington Post with us.
1: So I was like- Oh, that's right. When that list came out, I was like, yes, I read these three. <laughs>
0: and I was like, I better start reading these. So when, when you guys chose this, I was pretty excited. I didn't realize it was going to be such a thick book because it's 200, hold on, I have it in, in front of me. It's like what, 300 pages or something like that? 327 pages. And I literally thought I was going to read a comic book, which was 20 pages. So I think what I enjoyed about this was I opened it up thinking it was going to be very similar to Calvin Hobbes or Spider-Man.
1: Open with yeah. childbirth. Yeah.
0: And the irony is, so my kids, we, we were on vacation. And I had brought it along with me. And my six-year-old was like, hey, mommy, can I look at this? And I was like, sure. Thinking it was, I mean, it's a comic, right? Of course. And he comes back and he's like, I see boobs and a vagina. And I'm like, what is in this book? And lo and behold, within the first five pages,
1: yes, she is giving birth to a baby and there are boobs and a vagina. Um, Fun fact, this is not the first childbirth that has occurred in a book we read on Quarantine Comics.
2: (laughs) I think this is the fourth, and that's not been intentional. It's just like almost half of the books we've read so far happen to have a graphic depiction of childbirth
1: for some reason. I don't want to diminish this book, but it feels like if you had to have like a checkbox of tropes for serious Pulitzer- Prize worthy comics. It's like, show childbirth. Yeah. Check. Yeah. You know, just like, if you want to win an Academy Award, have some Nazis. <laughs> Check. You know.
0: And I think for me, opening on childbirth was actually something that really hooked me in because I completely related to her experience of having that be such a pivotal thing in my own life, too. Like the moment that you give birth to a human, everything changes. Just everything, everything about your own understanding of what your body can do. So like physically that changes, but spiritually and emotionally that changes. And she did such a beautiful job of expressing that in such a nuanced, complex way that then kind of set up the rest of the story of her own history.
1: Well, the nuance was the humanity of it. It was the, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I think her first thoughts are, please don't fall. Please don't fall. Yeah. It's it's a really human moment beyond this majestic hollywood kind of Absolutely. moment. Absolutely.
0: So you guys picked the perfect book for me, I think. I was like, "Oh, I can get with this."
1: It's all downhill from here, Sharon. I thought
0: it was going to be like Wonder Woman stuff and I was like, "Oh no, this is this is real. There are boobs
1: and private parts." <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, speaking of boobs and private parts, what did you think? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I
2: actually really love this book. When you first recommended it to me, I looked at the cover and I kind of was turned off by it because the cover looks like some celebrity book club mm, pick yeah. of the month yeah yeah um yeah. it's a really poor it's a really bad cover that doesn't do a good job showing how powerful t buoy is as an illustrator i wish that they gave her a like, carte blanche to just design the cover rather than have some in-house marketer do it yeah
1: it's, it looks like it's marketed for the airport
2: oh it looks horrible yeah, it, yeah it's a horrible cover but t buoy's art is fantastic and the way she tells the story you can see her getting her bearings initially it it took me a while to get into it the first chapter was great when she's talking about the childbirth the process of having brought this life into the world but also all of the things that happened to her body all of the nuances all of the uncertainty that stuff was amazing to see depicted and then she starts going into the backstory of her own family Mm -hmm. and that's where i felt she was still feeling out Who she is as a visual storyteller for instance when she introduces her siblings she kind of lists them all and she gives her dates of birth but it's not chronological and i was wondering okay so why did you do that was it because in much the same way t herself had to piece together the story of her family that was a lot of years of work it was probably really confusing at times she probably had to piece together some contradictions from different people i mean or did she just or she is she trying to kind of create that sensation for the readers Or was it just a mistake where she just gave the information out in a way that wasn't particularly easy to read? And I'm not entirely sure. It doesn't really matter because soon after, you see her really just mature as a storyteller. And she's just great at creating both telling, both her mother and her father's sides, kind of showing who she knows them to be, and then showing why they are the way they are, and how they met, and how the family started to come to be. I mean, that was really... When after I read the book, what was really striking to me, it was this unpacking of the immigrant, of her particular immigrant experience. And she's kind of tracing some of the habits that they have today, kind of back to really their constant need to escape the fact that they're constantly on uncertain ground due to the volatility in Vietnam.
1: Yeah. You know, this book, I'm guessing the reason I found it at the library, it was 2017 and it had just came out, so it was a new release. It was featured, and it had, you know, and so I grabbed it because anytime I see a comic book that doesn't look like superheroes that's featured somewhere, I'm like, I, it probably must be good. And if we flash, back, it's hard to flash back to 2017 because it's been a really fucking long three years. But this was when they were locking kids up in cages at the border, and I remember reading it the first time, and I cried as I was reading it multiple times. It was a really hard book for me to get through because we were also emotionally raw. And I I remember thinking, is like if everyone on the other side of this argument in our society could just read this book and it's not, it is about her specific family and it's about Vietnam and the Vietnam war, but, and, and there's something special and unique to how focused it is. But this is the same story as someone leaving Honduras or Guatemala in the caravan yeah. or whatever. Right. And it's just like, to under, And again, every American has some piece of this in their heritage. And this is like, a, it's such an American story to me, even though it is a Vietnamese yeah. story, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that's, that's also what makes
2: it special, the fact that it is a Vietnamese
1: story, because we see a
2: lot of immigrant stories told from the point of view of Italians or other, yeah. or usually whiter races, right? Mm-hmm. But every time you hear a story about the Vietnam War, it's always from the perspective of the Americans. And I think Bowie brings this up that much of the depictions of Vietnam really comes from America.
1: Well, uh, fun is- fact. So my my first time going to Vietnam back in 07 or 08, you know what they call it there. They call it the American War. Like that's what they call the war. Because they had mm-hmm. a French war. They had a Chinese war. They yeah. had an American war. It's not the Vietnam War to them. That's interesting. That's kind of pounds home the
2: fact that, as, as if we didn't already know, but... There are a lot of different perspectives out there. And, and sometimes we just overlook some of the richest perspectives because we, I put we in
1: quotation marks, just kind of <laughs> speaking as an American. Yeah, yeah it's we. It's, it's, I, I'm guilty. Seriously, I, uh, before, I, I, going back to that trip, I kind of knew the Vietnam War was a thing. I think it was a war that we lost. I kind of didn't pay attention in history class because it was a bit of a footnote in our history. Some Because really it was a war like that, that America lost. Yeah, 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 seriously. And then I'm reading The Lonely Planet on the flight over. And my wife and I were in Chi and we went to the war museum and to just see their depiction of it. And, and it's a great, great country, great people, awesome food, beautiful scenery, just like it's one of my top five places in the world. And we fucked them over. <laughs> and then, there's another book that it's a graphic illustration of, I think the people's history of the United States or something like that, that we should read Ryan, but it's, uh, it's, you know, one thing I read about this, two things I read about this book between readings the first time and then for this is they talk, there's a chapter called The chessboard, And someone was like, I wish she would called it that because it's like putting all these pieces of her family mm. together, moving them on the board in this like circuitous kind of yeah. way. But the other thing to come back to the art was the simplicity of the art. And when I say simplicity, it's very complex and nuanced, but she makes it look easy. But if you look at the way she draws faces, it's a very simplistic, not hyper-realistic, not a Jim Lee kind of style, Ryan. And I think you emote more with the characters because of that. I feel like I'm putting my own emotions into reading these simple expressions.
2: Well, she's very economical, like with her line work and with her brushwork, just aesthetically. I'm looking at page 50 right now, where she has both these landscapes, then she got the shots of this car car caravan full of people stumbling over the rocky pathways and you got a close-up of the mother's face yeah she's extremely versatile that's the other thing i'd want to bring up she's very good at creating an array of different moods an array of different tones and not a lot of artists can
0: do that yeah and she is really great at also kind of showing the intimacy between the characters or the dissonance between them too so yeah
2: that's such a
1: good word you know with the parents and stuff She's very good at that.
0: Actually,
2: I'm just looking at what you brought up, Sharon. On page 52, she talks about the birth of, I think, the the oldest baby girl who eventually dies. But the way she does it, she shows the shot of the baby girl and the mother holding mm-hmm. her, but she kind of divides it into two panels, which is actually very, very symbolic and very appropriate given what ultimately happens, the
0: tragedy yeah. that happens. Yeah, she's an amazing storyteller.
1: I got to ask both of you guys. So, I mean, we're all Asians. I'm South Asian, Indian, and you guys are both Mm Chinese-American. Did any of this feel familiar to you?
0: It felt familiar and yet foreign at the same time. So it felt... I've had a couple of friends growing up who themselves were Vietnamese refugees. And Mm -hmm. there were definitely parts of the story that I felt like I had heard through my friends' experiences or even just through hearing about their families. The parts for me that were very familiar were the whole male-female dynamic in their family and familiar and foreign at the same time. I think women in Chinese culture are not as important or seen as important as men, right? Like in very traditional Chinese culture, the man, he holds the lineage of the family. And so boys are much more wanted than girls are and all of that stuff. And I think most of us are pretty familiar with the whole one child policy and and how a lot of girls were getting aborted because of this. And just that's just kind of a cultural belief. And when I was reading this book, the pressure on the men in the book to, to keep the family safe, to keep things going, and kind of like the societal pressure was very familiar to me. What was a little foreign to me though was how fucked up a lot of these guys were.
1: Yeah, the grandpa was a tool.
0: Yeah, the the grandfather was a gambler. He was an abusive husband. He was sleeping with prostitutes, right? Like her father was also, I mean, I understood it later on as we got deeper into the story of kind of him slipping into a depression. But in the very beginning, he just seemed like he was also kind of like a complete loser that was dependent on her mom.
1: Because that's, that's how they start with him. And then right. they do the backstory. Right. Yeah.
0: So- There was this interesting moment of me reading this and being like, okay, I can totally get why it was really up to the women. The women weren't powerless, but they just didn't have as much say, I think, with a lot of the negotiations that would happen outside of the family. I thought it was really interesting that her grandmother, was it her grandmother that snuck opium away? Because that's what was the most valuable at the time. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 That was interesting. So
0: kind of like the way that women found their power in these covert ways because that's all they had, right? They they wouldn't have been able to go and find a sailor to get them off of the island. They they wouldn't have been able to negotiate in these public places, but they could carry some opium because that would give them some leverage in certain private conversations. I thought that was really fascinating.
2: Those little details about how they survived, right? It's not just dodging bullets. It's it's those nuances of they're use, she's using opium as currency, and then when it gets destroyed, you know, she has to go back to her ne'er do well husband. Mm-hmm. Those touches of those details about how the family actually was able to survive in Vietnam was unusual and something I've never seen depicted
1: before. Yeah, uh, the father stuff. As we're jumping on page sixty-eight, this photo of the dad Ba walking down the hallway of the cheap apartment with the daughter just kind of like trailing behind him. It that idea of dissonance, Sharon, is I, again I can't speak to other people's relationships with their parents, but like growing up, my dad was this foreign. I don't want to say he wasn't warm but this mystery we didn't know much about his backstory we just knew dad was strict dad had moods and and my dad was great he was a great father but it wasn't until as a teenager and as an adult i started to learn more about his story leaving India, leaving everything and it's that kind of unpacking you know because that's how you meet her dad the first time you uh, first you meet her dad as an adult and parents are divorced because you know asian parents didn't get along and then as a little girl you start with her dad as a little girl and he's this, like, guy who sits in the corner when mom goes to work because he doesn't want to go to work and he just smokes. And, again, that's not my dad. But just this, like, person who's quiet and stoic and I'm a little bit scared of him, right, as a little kid. And then she just dives into why is he this way. And you see pictures of him as a little boy and all of just the terrible thing, the traumatic things this guy had to endure, as did many Vietnamese people, right? But it's just, like, this backstory I think the dad might be my favorite character. I mean, the mom's also a favorite character, but she came of privilege and she left it all behind. I I think the parents are my favorite characters yeah. far and away just because it made me think about without getting to my own parent's story. And it was nowhere near as extreme as what T's parents had to go through. But my parents went through some shit, right? Be it partition, Amin, all these things. And I'm like, God, I just, I don't know. I kind of want, I don't kind of want to do a book like this about my parents. I wasn't going to, I was actually going to ask you about your parents'
2: story, but at the higher level, when you talk to your dad about where he came from, how, how much did it change your understanding of how he was to you as a father?
1: Now that I'm a, it's funny, if you ask me that question before I was a father and after I was a father, because I think about this all the time now, because I have a four-year-old and before I was a father, I got it, but I didn't relate to it. So as a kid, dad's mean, dad's strict, dad's quiet, dad doesn't talk. We don't know much about dad's family. Then teenager, college, 20-year-olds, he starts to reveal more. I go back to India with him. I find out he's estranged from his family. Even my mom's own refugee story, right? I start to unpack these things like, oh, wow, that's different. Oh, that makes sense. I can connect the dots, but I would never be like that. And now, as I I think about what my parents did when they were in their 20s, right? And starting a family, moving to a country they didn't speak the language or was pretty racist, all of these things. And what I was doing in my 20s. And, like, I, re- it's so funny, Sharon. Like, uh, sorry, the episode on our other podcast that we're going to air tomorrow uh, or this week is about this girl, Lulu. And she talks about her parents' journey. Right. Having to work on, un- like a college professor, having to work under the table. And I just, I feel like I reek of privilege when I try to relate to my parents and everything they went through. And I don't think that's unique. T has that feeling. I know you guys probably do one or two generations back. I think every American has that. Like we are standing on the backs of, sorry, I'm getting a little preachy and we should get back to the book, but like I guess this book really brings it home. My own privilege, our own privilege as Americans, that this is what we stand on the back of.
2: You kind of asked Sharon earlier about how familiar this was. And she kind of said some of it was very familiar, some of it not. And I was thinking about that too, about my family's immigrant story. I was born here. My mom came here on a boat and neither were really refugees. I guess the closest was my paternal grandfather who came here because his dad wanted him out of China because the Japanese were invading. So he kind of got out before the shit hit the fan. But there was a lot of wheeling and dealing that they had to do in order to get him yeah. here because initially yeah. he was illegal. Yeah. It wasn't they, he actually came here. Sharon, are you familiar with the paper yep, sons?
0: Absolutely. My my grandfather yeah. was so a, my, my, a paper son.
2: Same with yeah. Same with mm-hmm. my grandfather. So oh, wait, explain so it. Explain you know? it to
1: the rest of us. Explain it really quick. So in
2: 1904, big earthquake takes out San Francisco. The fire destroys all of these records, including the records of the people, the Chinese immigrants. And what follows is this sort of cottage industry where the Chinese who have settled in America can suddenly claim, oh, so-and-so in China is my brother or my sister or my son. Exactly. And so they would be sons on paper. You pay somebody, you're a son on paper, and then you come to America under the guise, in my my father's case, the last name I think was Lowe. So my last name is Joe. His last name, when he came here, he pretended to be related to a man named Lowe. And he had to memorize all sorts of weird esoteric trivia about this fellow Lowe's life. Like the immigration officers would ask him things like, how many bathrooms were in your house? What story were they in? How many windows were in the bathroom? Yes. What it. was the orientation of... He had to memorize all of that shit. And... Wow. um and he did actually he had a really sharp memory i you know i only knew him as he was kind of you know older but kind of looking at how well he performed we got a foia we put in a foia request a while ago so we got the transcripts of those that's so cool just reading at how sharp he was and how much he was able to memorize that stuff and recite it under pressure because he's there with the immigration officer and if That immigration officer didn't let you in. You're going back Mm -hmm. to China. And here come the Japanese. It's literally a matter of life and death. Yeah. And I was blown away at his ability to do that. So he didn't have this constant warfare happening when he left, I don't think. But the stakes were still high and he had to kind of find his own way. He had to finagle his way in. It wasn't a very clean process as it was similarly to
1: T. Bowie's family. Yeah. I'm glad you brought it back, because Ryan, it felt like Sharon in my podcast was hijacking this podcast. <laughs>
2: Honestly, I kind of figured it would, though, because this I, I think we all had a very personal response to this book. I mean, we can talk yeah. about the art and how good of a storyteller T. Bui is, but it's the personal resonance
1: that makes this book matter to to us. Yeah, it's funny. On the other show, we've interviewed a number of Vietnamese American guests, and as a thank you, I actually want to send a copy of this book. because Most people don't read comics, are not familiar with it. And I I feel like every culture in America has one or two stories that if I wanted to explain the Indian American experience, I'd be like, hey, go watch Never Have I Ever on Netflix. That's the most accurate. And I feel like this, there's actually a couple other comics specifically that tell the Vietnamese American story so well. One, One thing I loved was... How easy back then. And again, she came over, I think, and she was born in 75. I think she came over as like a five or six-year-old. So she came over in the 80s, around the time we were born. And back then, it was super easy for family to sponsor other family. I remember that as well. Like my dad single-handedly sponsored so many members of my mom's family to come to this country. And again, to make it political, that's not happening anymore. It's really hard to come here now. Even if you have family, even if you are married, even if you have 10 degrees, like how the parents had all these advanced education degrees, and it didn't matter when they got here. I think there's one part where the dad's like, we should study this, or we should go to America because we speak French, like the decision of whether what country to go to from the refugee camp in Malaysia, there's just so many moments like that ring true or uncovered something like I asked my dad, why'd you come to America? Why, in, why versus Britain or Canada or whatever, right? And to see their negotiation with where should we go. What did he say? It seemed oh, cooler.
0: That's simple.
1: <laughs> it wasn't as significant as in this book. And I remember asking my mom more recently, part of my interview project that you guys were part of, because mom had multiple suitors, right? It was a semi-arranged marriage. And there was one Canadian guy, one Australian guy. And my mom was like, your dad seemed nice in America. I'd heard a lot about it. <laughs> like, I never knew that your parents
0: were in a semi-arranged marriage.
1: Wow. Yeah. And and this marriage, in this book, it's a yes. love marriage. Are you talking about the mother and the father?
0: Are you talking about T
1: or her parents? Here's what I'm saying. I don't know if arranged marriage is a thing in Vietnamese culture, but she didn't want to be married, and she kind of... Well, he's depressed and he's going to die. I should give him a happy two years. That was some like dark, deep shit. She got pregnant, I thought. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They had a, I mean, not a shotgun wedding, but they, yeah, she got pregnant before.
1: Oopsie baby. Oopsie baby. But no, they were dating. She went back home or something. He got really sick. that's true. And she was like, I'm going to make his last couple of years really nice. She did say that. She said at
0: some point (laughs) that she only married him because she didn't think he would live very long or something like that.
2: Yeah, so to me, it's a marriage because she accidentally gets pregnant, probably when they're just fooling around being college kids. And then yeah, it's it's mostly because she's just trying to be nice. She marries the guy just because she doesn't really feel good about saying no, because he's probably right. dying. And I think it's interesting to see T's reaction to that. Also, because she has this line where she says, it always seemed my mom was happiest before yeah, we came yeah. out, we were around so and before she married her, my <laughs> dad. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but really brutally honest. I actually thought that was really striking. The life that the mother lives as this kind of independent, glamorous, single woman doing her thing, and then how quickly that changes, not just because she gets married, but also because of this upheaval that happens throughout the country, Mm -hmm. this constant colonialization with the French and then the Americans. It, it, it just kind of forces her into this one area. She's just trying to survive and there's only one area, there's only one path you can take and you got to get married to this guy and you got to stay married and you just got to keep moving. It was interesting to me how all of that upheaval just cut off all of the pathways, how how their options
1: were just like, there's only one option right Yeah. Now. Go to page 196 in the bottom right corner and it basically is like, it turns out, he got better. And that one panel where above it, it's the mom saying he got better. And like the look of despondence oh, yeah. in there's just like so many gut punch moments. She's wearing her wedding dress too. I mean, that's,
0: it's a great, it's a great photo. Mm. Great image.
1: Yeah. I just, yeah. So many moments like this that are just like, you know, it isn't a fairy tale. And I guess everyone's story is, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's n- nothing is a fairy tale.
0: No, it does seem like all of the important decisions were made for survival, right? Including who do we marry? Where do we live? What do we do next?
2: Yeah. That was just kind of, I don't know, what was so... You know, it's just something that you don't really think about when you don't see the story from the refugee's perspective. When, as, you know, as often depicted in Hollywood, these people are just kind of scurrying around and the story is from the, the mm-hmm. soldier's perspective. Mm-hmm. But understanding that they had a life before you assholes came into town with your machine guns and how much of that life just gets obliterated and closed off how much of that potential is lost of what they could have been i mean they definitely succeeded in america right they were able to get their children to prosper and the children now have families but even still
1: what they could have where their lives could have gone if they weren't always trying to trying to escape well i feel like every hardship depicted every scene of just struggle for the most part is I think what she's trying to say is my parents took it in stride because it's from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and they just keep going forward because they have no other choice you just got to find a way opium's gone find a thing guy's boat failed find a thing you know I think they just don't have the luxury, really, to mourn and complain about, oh, if only I got yeah. into
2: Harvard or I got into Harvard yeah. and don't have to go to a state school. This is like, well, shit, this is what happened. I wish it
1: didn't. But if since survival is paramount, there's you've got to move. you got to keep well, moving. Oh, and and, and, it, and it, I think it informs stoicism that her parents have now. That her parents in the, the modern day are very mm-hmm. kind of, it mm-hmm. is what it is. Like, all the other shit going on in the world to her parents feels insignificant to what they went through our other guest Sharon Lulu talks about this. Like there's like a big thing in Asian American culture right now about why aren't our parents' generation more up in arms right now about BLM, Black Lives Matter. And it's not that they don't care. I, it's the stoicism of what right. they went through. And I'm not, again, it's not that our parents are saying no to Black Lives Matter. I, I just think they don't get as emotionally resonant as our generation does because our generation has kind of lived a cushy existence, our Asian American. So when we see the hardships of black Americans, we're up in arms, but our parents are like, well, shit was real yeah. too for us. And again, it's a dangerous line of health of them saying that, but their perspective as our, as our friend Lulu said, was try to understand where they're coming yeah. from.
2: Well, I also think it's just because they're old and they're going through their own <laughs> shit, their own health <laughs> problems, their own problems with their own parents who are, who have health problems. Yeah, And I think probably I'm, projecting here or guessing here. But from their perspective, they already raised their kids and left the world as it is, as as it is now. And now it's up to the next generation. If you want to change it, it's up to the next generation to change it. I kind of get that, that sense, not from everybody, but from a lot of people in my parents' generation. I will say a lot of other people that I know, some neighbors, and even a lot of my aunts and uncles are very up in arms over the current state. But I think the older you get, the more problems you have. And sometimes those just take precedence over whatever societal change is happening, either outside your window in some other state. Or
0: maybe they've just seen this happen so many times with so many different groups of people that this just seems like another chapter in the story instead of a big moment.
2: Yeah. I also wonder how many... There are a lot of iconic moments happening in recent months, really a lot of big moments. And I'm wondering, one of the things that happens in The Best We Can Do is... Uh, there's a lot of unpacking of images and tropes that are commonly associated with Vietnam. Like the guy being shot in the yeah. head by the general. And yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And they give the different perspective, which is why was he shot? Why was he executed in the first place? And in giving that explanation, to emphasize how much that image, as shocking
1: and horrifying as it is, was used as propaganda to further America's agenda.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But wasn't that the photo that when it was seen by Americans, it really turned the tide of the anti-war movement.
0: I think so. I think that's what it says in the book. Yeah, that's what it says in the book. From, I
1: can't say I was not, you know, I don't I don't know from personal right. experience. But yeah, again, to the point of it, that picture was used to say, look at the atrocities that are being caused. And at the same time, we were executing someone who did a horrible right. thing. It was the realities of war. I want to come back to the art a little. One choice that T-Boy makes is in the color. And it's something... Again, less is more. Yeah. There's literally three colors in this book: black, white, and this orange. Some gradation of this orange sepia. I
0: thought it was beautiful. I don't know when I saw that color, it reminded me of sunsets in Vietnam. You know, it's a very choiceful color.
2: It's also the color of the Vietnam flag, which I think is probably intentional. Red as as well. yeah. 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 And kind of just from a more practical standpoint, if you're trying to learn graphic storytelling and you're still figuring things out, it's probably a
1: lot easier if you just color in red rather than have to use a full <laughs> spectrum.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: So Sharon, we're almost out of time. Any last thoughts on the book?
0: I'm glad I read it. And you guys have actually opened up my eyes to just comics as a format of storytelling now. like, I kind of want to ask you guys for a whole list of what I should read next. What should I?
1: Oh, there's a spreadsheet. Oh, good. I want to see your
0: spreadsheet (laughs) because this, this was just so satisfying in a way that I didn't expect. And it was just so quick to read, you know, like it was a really deep story and really heavy. It was meaty, but it just seemed like it went by so much faster because of the, because of the format. So I really enjoyed it.
1: Awesome. So Ryan, what are we reading next week? Well, speaking of the
0: French, next week
2: we're going to be reading the Inkle. Released throughout the 1980s, written by the legendary filmmaker Alejandro Hodorowski, and illustrated by the legendary artist Mobius. Originally, Hodorowsky and Mobius were supposed to collaborate in the 1970s on a cinematic adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune, which is probably one of the most famous films never made. It was set to star Charlotte Rampling, David Carradine, Orson Welles, Gloria Swanson, and Salvador Dali, with set and costume designs by H.R. Giger, most famous for visualizing the alien xenomorph, and Mobius. So, why do I bring that up? The Inkle is where you can finally see some of those original design concepts and story ideas and even storyboards that were meant for Hodorowski's interpretation of Dune. So, in all fairness, the Inkle is an entirely different story than Dune. And it is also, I am so sorry about this, Roman, a lot less penetrable the deeper into the narrative you get. Which awesome. is sort of sort of characteristic of almost everything that Hodorowski does. If you've ever seen any of his films, you know it's not about the plots and you know the characterizations aren't even trying to hit any of the traditional emotional registers. But I think his work is mostly about the visuals and ideas that are interesting, maybe not across an entire narrative, but on a scene-by-scene basis. But, Ruman, I don't think that's a bad thing, because is it a bad thing when the experiences from whatever chemicals you've been ingesting don't have a three-act structure? Anyway, with an artist as powerful <laughs> as Mobius the Inkle, I think might live up to the billing. We'll find out next week.
1: Well, Sharon, it has been a pleasure talking to you about, I guess we did talk about race and immigrants and stuff. So pretty much the same thing we do every week.
0: (laughs) Thank you guys for having me and for getting me to read a comic book. Awesome. Thank you, Sharon.
1: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong, qtdcomics at gmail.com. We give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe. And remember, proximity and closeness are not the same.